you? Nice to meet you. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, is it this mic? Yeah, sometimes it wiggles. There we go. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, ah, your body and blood. Lord, we thank you that we can come into your presence with thanksgiving and praise. Uh, we enter your gates. <clears throat> You've welcomed us. You've invited us. You've called us. You've predestined us. And that we're not enough. You came down to earth to take us by the hand and lead us into your presence. Because you want to be, you want us to be with you. Ah, we thank you for that grace. We just pray that your grace would be present as I share this word, this teaching, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, I'm looking at the seven deadly sins. And, um, you know, if you're brought up in certain church traditions, you may be familiar with that term. If you were brought up in other church traditions, you may have never heard of it. <laughs> but it was a list of sins that the church over, uh, over, over 1,600 years, for 1,600 years, 16 centuries, this has been an integral part of the teaching of the church, identifying uh, uh, the seven, seven sins uh, are areas of sinfulness that are especially deadly or are destructive to one's soul. And, and I just want to reference this book, Disordered Love. I just came upon it completely by, <clears throat> I think, divine chance. God led me it. And, and it's, it, you can get it on, on Amazon.com for the amazing price of 94 cents. <clears throat> but it really delves in deeper. If what I'm t- teaching um, sparks an interest in you, get a copy of it and read it, because he just takes it to a, a really much deeper level. I'm just kind of giving you a snapshot. <clears throat> but today, we get to talk about the second of the deadly sins. They're not in any particular order, but this is the order in which we're looking at them. And last week, we talked about gluttony. This week, we get to talk about lust. And so, um, just to make it a little, trying to lighten the mood a little bit here is, is why we're, we're, we're borrowing from some familiar characters. And yes, now we know why bashful is bashful. <laughs> All right. You know, the church has been teaching on these issues for, for uh, almost two millennia. <clears throat> And of course, all of the issues are, you know, all sin is, is deadly in one sense, and, and all of it, all of these different areas of sin are, are dealt with in Scripture, so it goes back thousands of years. <clears throat> but, you know, in our day, we neglect, and the church really has neglected some of these issues, uh, merely because they're old-fashioned or, or archaic, and what a strategy of the enemy to get us to ignore or reject something just because it's old-fashioned. All right. The, the fact is, is that the problems of humanity really haven't changed uh, over the time. We still have the same essential issues that we struggle with. It's just our technology has changed, our tools have changed. But but a tool that's more powerful or more efficient doesn't mean it's better or worse. It, it really can be used equally as much for evil as for good depending on the hands of the person that, that's holding it, right? The character of the individual that's using a tool. You know, the Internet can be something that's it's an amazing source 
of information and connectivity. But in an instant, it can be devolve into a uh, source of uh, 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 pornography and self-absorption. You know, so something that's really powerful for good can in an instant be really powerful for evil. And it's the same, same, same problem. The, the issues within ourselves. And, and Jesus said in John 8.34, it says, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And so sin, violating uh, God's commandment, and we'll get into what that means a little bit more, uh, it brings slavery, it brings bondage. And this is why it's so serious. Uh, Jesus said <clears throat> that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, and sin is, so sin at its core is slavery, it's bondage. But Jesus came to set us free. Amen? Alright? <clears throat> but if the enemy can convince us that sin is not really our evil master, but just, you know, our weakness or our, our friend. If he, could, if he can just change how we look at sin from being the evil master that holds us in bondage that Jesus said it was, to just being maybe a little weakness that we struggle with, then we will not walk in the freedom Jesus came to give us. Does that make sense? Alright, so we need to see sin for what it is. William Stafford in this book, <clears throat> Disordered Love, said, Sin is the refusal of human beings to let God be God. It is the decision to create a false center for life. An idol to which we give our ultimate loyalty. And sin is wrong because it's contrary to the person and the nature of God. It's not an arbitrary list of rules. Okay, sin is sin. By definition, that means it's contrary to God's person, to his not his personality, who he is, his 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 being. And so we want to look a little more closely at this this thing called lust. All right, and uh, so uh, here we go. Excited? <laughs> I'm actually really challenged. I could easily teach a whole month or a year on the issue of sexuality. And unfortunately, it's not going to be a sermon on sexuality uh, in total, but just kind of identifying, uh, you know, this, this what lust is, uh, the perversion. You know, all of these are, <coughs> are, uh, um, are corruptions of something good. And so if we want to take a, a brief look at, well, what, what, is, what does lust corrupt? What is the good that God created that lust corrupts? And then a remedy, some remedies, some things that we can do to give us victory, to help us live in victory over lust. Lust simply, in a general sense, is inordinate desire uh, for anything, an obsession, all right? a longing especially for what is forbidden. In, in the list of the seven deadly sins, and in this context, it does mean and is almost always referring specifically to sinful sexual desire, uh, sexual sinful desire, sinful sexual desire, inordinate desire in the sexual area. Okay. <clears throat> James talks about lust. James chapter one, verse 14 through 16 in the New American Standard. I'm going to quote it from it says, each one of us is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Okay. And this, in this verse, this is a general use of the term lust. It can refer to, to any inordinate desire. It says, 
Verse 15 says, When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Bless little baby Zoe. (laughs) I love babies. Let's read this again. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Okay, so here lust in the context certainly is talking about inordinate desire for anything. But even in this setting, it's presented in the context or with the use of a sexual metaphor. It's conceived. It brings forth birth. Okay, it's birth. So even in this setting, it's, it's, the sexual image is, is used to illustrate, um, the origin of lust. And that the problem, the point of the verse, <clears throat> one commentary puts it this way, says the cause of our sin is in ourselves. Alright? And another commentary says the fountain or source of all temptation is in man or woman, human himself. It is true that external inducements to sin may be placed before him, but they would have no force if there was not something in himself to which they corresponded, over which they might have power. There must be some lust, some desire, some inclination. Listen, something which is unsatisfied now, which is made the fountain of temptation, which gives it all its power. Alright, so the hook of temptation is something which is unsatisfied now. And when I read that, I just, oh, it hit me. There's some unmet desire or need even. And keep in mind that desire is not evil. Okay? Desire is good. When I was talking to a friend that was not a believer in one of the conversations I had recently and I had the opportunity to spend hours just talking about faith with him. And, uh, you know, this idea that desire in itself is bad. You know, that's Buddhism. Alright? Buddhism teaches that the, the way to ob- ob- obtain peace is to rid yourself of all desire. And it's unmet desire that creates disappointment. And so, uh, uh, the original man who founded Buddhism said that the solution then is just to get rid of desire. Alright? Because desire is, is evil. And Christians sometimes think that. We, we, we're like, we kind of just borrow a Buddhist idea, not even knowing it's Buddhist. Not knowing the real understanding, the theory behind it. And we think, well, lust is bad. Lust is inordinate desire, so all desire is bad. No, desire is actually good. Okay? Desire is a really good thing. God says that He's going to give us the desires of our hearts. He works in us to will, to desire, and to do of His good pleasure. Jesus is called the desire of all nations. Okay, do you know what that means? That means that all of humanity in its DNA, if you will, in its spiritual uh, 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 framework, has this inborn desire for Jesus. Every race, every person, man, woman, child, there's a des- he's the desire of all nations. And so, <clears throat> where Buddhism says peace is found in absence, not fulfillment, 
Their goal, then, is nothingness. Does that sound... <laughs> Think about that. Alright? On the contrary, Jesus, who is the desire of all nations, is where we find fulfillment. Alright? Our deepest desires are met through relationship with Him. And once our deepest desires are met in relationship with Him, then we can appropriately or in, in an ordinate way, in a proper way, enjoy all other things. Because He meets the desire. And what a contrast between a, a world view that says, you know, you can only have peace by rejecting everything and rejecting desire itself. And Jesus says, no, you can have it all. Because I am all in all. Have me and you have it all. Does that mean, what a different. And that those desires are good. Turn those desires toward me and you can have, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and you'll have all these other things. Alright, and so it's the fulfillment of desire, having desire in, in the proper place rather than making a particular desire an idol and rejecting the real, the real purpose for the desire in our heart. Alright, does that make any sense? <clears throat> right, a little bit more about uh, this sin of, uh, of lust and sexual, uh, inordinate sexual desire. First of all, human sexuality is stinking confusing. Okay, <laughs> if anybody thinks they have it figured out, you're just deceived. <laughs> All right? You may be really secure in your deception, but I am convinced it is very, very slippery. All right, at times it's animalistic. Okay, you know, there's just an animal side of it that's kind of like, ugh, you know. But who can deny it? Right? <laughs> you know, and at other times it can express the highest ideals of beauty and love. You know? Sometimes sexuality can just be like, wow. Just like some, something pure and, and almost unattainably, uh, virtuous. But then just a second later it can be just animalistic. And so there's this, and there's, and, and every, every stage in between, every, every level in between, it kind of goes back and forth. And so sexuality is, is difficult. <clears throat> I think that sexuality in our day is really confused because our whole culture has just given over to the fact of it's confused. Let's go with that. You know, <laughs> you know, if you've rejected objective truth, uh, as an objective truth, <clears throat> then there's, you have no definition of what's right and wrong. Uh, uh, and so all, everything goes. And so it just gets more and more confused. Um, in the book, there's a quote. It says, Christians have always, uh, speaking of some historical agreement over the centuries, even though there's been different uh, uh, responses or viewpoints about sexuality, there, there is a, a continuing theme <clears throat> amongst the church. And Christians have always honored celibacy. Celibacy is those who uh, take a vow of uh, 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 never having sex, you know, not mar- marrying and, and keeping celibate. Jesus said it's a gift. It's one of the, it's one of the spiritual gifts that very few people uh, desire. <laughs> the least desired spiritual gift is mar- it Well, it's actually not celibacy. Most people would... The least... Desired is, is martyrdom. So maybe it's better than martyrdom. 
we could argue that. <laughs> okay, let me read the quote and quit jabbering. <laughs> Christians have always honored celibacy, at least in theory. They have always honored, in, honored marriage, at least in theory. And they have always prohibited a list of sexual actions, including such acts as adultery and fornication. The list varied somewhat among different communities, but they could uh, all be summarized as prohibiting any form of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Today, many Christians question some of these basic rules because they find them harsh, stifling, or unworthy of a gospel in which love has replaced law. I, the author, and I personally, myself, accept them, these traditionally defined values, as a fixed point in Christian tradition, rooted in Scripture and revealed through two millennia, two thousand years of common life as guardians of love. And I love that phrase. That these, 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 these uh, restrictions or, uh, or what we value concerning sexuality, these rules are actually guardians of love. All right. <clears throat> I want to get a little practical about uh, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in, in the area of sexuality. Hebrews thirteen four says, "Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge." First of all, that is in the New Testament. All right. <clears throat> Sex within marriage is honorable. It's undefiled. Within marriage, there's no, no defilement whatsoever. It's not inherently bad. Okay? Sex is not the original sin. That's not what original sin means. Alright? Sex was God's idea. In fact, the first commandment that God gave mankind was to be fruitful and multiply. And what does that imply? Yeah. <laughs> Alright? And the main problem within Christian marriage Concerning sex is that generally there's just not enough of it going on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> huh? Yeah, yeah, we'll text it anonymously. So there's nothing wrong with sex within marriage, alright? It's not the original. But in this verse, it then says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornication is the Greek word pornos. General term for anything sexually inappropriate, including pornography, premarital sex, prostitution, homosexuality, and the whole list. Any sexual behavior that is contrary to God's character. Adultery is having sex or sexual intercourse, sexual relationships with anyone other than your married spouse. Uh, and, and, and I can't take the whole sermon to, to, to define this, but uh, you know where is the line? If you're unmarried, if you're married, it's honorable, it's undefiled within the marriage relationship. It's it's great. Okay, outside the marriage relationship, where is the line? Well, well, I tell I like to tell people like in premarried counseling, I said don't do anything that you wouldn't do in front of your grandmother. You know, or or don't do anything you wouldn't do. You know. In front of me. Or really, don't do anything you wouldn't do in front of God, because that's what you're doing it. 
Alright? Don't do any behavior that you wouldn't do openly in front of God. Alright, I need to move on. Why is lust or sexual sin bad? <clears throat> Alright? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. I'm going to read this verse from two, uh, 15 through 20 first in the New King James. Uh, and then I'll read it in the message. <clears throat> Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? Now, you understand that <clears throat> he's speaking about literal prostitution there. And Christians who are having difficulty... Um, going to prostitutes. All right? But the, the general theme is any sexual immorality. Because right? even if you don't actually pick up a prostitute, you can commit the same sin on a different level. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God? And you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. From the message, <clears throat> until that time, remember that your bodies are created with the same dignity as the Master's body. Yeah. You wouldn't take the Master's body that we just celebrated the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. You wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. There's more to sex than the mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As the scripture is written, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given, God-modeled love, for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. The problem with sexual sin is that it violates community. Okay, problem number one. It violates the body of Christ. It defiles the body of Christ. And we, we, we recognize the, the honor, the, the purpose in Jesus' body broken and, and nailed to the cross in communion. But we are that body. And so what you do with your physical body reveals how you respect the body of Jesus. And the church is the body. 
And so it's this proper sexuality is the ultimate expression of becoming one. Right? But becoming one, unity is community. And, and, and so in a broader sense, it affects the unity of the body of Christ. If you violate oneness on such a base level, on such a foundational level with your sexuality, do you see how that fractures the unity within the body of Christ and within the community? This is why our society is falling apart. It's because the foundational uh, uh, base of, of unity expressed through sexuality is so fractured. It's fractured every other form of community. Okay? Does that make any sense? That's why sexual purity is so important. Why? Because it fractures community. It makes us unable to be one. And as a body of Christ, we need to be one. One with our Maker and one with one another. And it's nothing expresses that more powerfully than how we live in our sexuality. It's about integrity. Integrity, not just maintaining outward conduct of rules, but integrity is something that has internal strength without fracture. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> All right. Second reason... Oh. Celibacy, this is still, it violates community. Celibacy and marriage are holy and blessed, this is from the book, because they explicitly model the kingdom of God. God's kingdom. Marriage models God's kingdom. Celibacy, sexual integrity, models the kingdom of God. Sexual, or lust, Immorality is lawlessness and compromises that community's intimacy with God. That's why it's so important. Okay, number two reason why it's bad. It violates the individual. It violates the community. It violates the individual. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own body. If you commit sexual sin, you are violating your own very physical body, your spiritual body, your soul, spirit, mind. It all gets violated. Alright? Lust acts by disconnecting and alienating sexual behavior from the rest of your life. Alright? Right? Does that make sense? Lust... Whatever, wherever you want to put lust, whether it's a momentary glance at someone that you lust toward or uh, clicking on pornographic stuff on your computer or whatever, committing adultery or fornication. What it does is it disconnects and alienates sexual behavior from the rest of your life. You have to separate it. Pornography fragments sexuality into non-human objects. Pornography is, just let me just say it real clearly. It's, it's, it's insane. Okay? It's like a starving person looking at a menu from Applebee's or something with all the pictures of, of delicious food. Okay? but never being able to touch it. Is that going to satisfy desire? Or does it just stir it up more? Alright? It's, it's insane. It's insanity. 
<clears throat> All right. Pornography fragments sexuality not only to non-human objects like pictures or video pixels on a video screen, but even further, it breaks the act of sex down into body parts, breasts, thighs, legs. You know, it focuses in on little parts. And people that are given over to pornography generally end up with fetishes upon a particular part of the body. It reduces sex to, you know, a bucket of meat. Fried chicken. Isn't that just yucky? <clears throat> Fornication fragments a person by keeping sexuality secret, hidden. Momentary encounters that, dis- that are disconnected from the whole of life. See, your sexuality is supposed to be part of your whole life. You're supposed to be one. Not broken up into pieces, not severed. But immorality and improper sexuality de- demands. Otherwise, you know, you just, if you live it just completely flagrantly, then what happens? Everybody else rejects you. But if you keep it hidden and secret, you know, you allow your sexual immorality a little piece of you here and a little piece of you there, and then there's this other piece of you that's presentable, you've just cut yourself into pieces. Oh, isn't it fun? <clears throat> All right. Human pattern. This is a quote. The human pattern of fornication or multiple sex patterns, partners, multiple sex partners, mirrors the pattern of idolatry, worshiping one God after another for what one can get. So your relationship with someone is just for what you can get out of it. Just like worshiping an idol. Adultery is the most disastrous manifestation of lust because it's a breakdown of covenant. It's the destruction of not just one person, not just two people, but the whole family. Furthermore, it actually uh, reaches down and causes destruction in the, the very foundational building block of our society. It comes against covenantal love, which is what all of human society is built on and what rep- reflects and best represents God's character and His intention in His relationship with us as human beings. Alright? The church is the bride of Christ. So adultery kind of, man, just right down to the depths of it. It requires a fragmentation. Uh, When someone's with their lover, they're one person with different rules than when they're with their family. They literally cut themselves into pieces. And before long, they will fall apart. All right. Now you can say, "Well, I haven't gone that far, but I've only I sometimes give in to this." It's all cutting yourself into pieces. All right. It breaks. It violates you as an individual. That's why it's wrong. It violates the purpose that God intends for sexuality and for life. Sex is intertwined with the with the most the deepest part of of life. Okay. <clears throat> Think for a minute here. All of our lives started at the moment of a sexual encounter. All right? Right? So, so sex is kind of right there at the beginning. <laughs> and that's where it ought to be. All right? It produces life. All right? <clears throat> Improper sexuality violates that purpose. The purpose of 
unity and passion and love and commitment and family and life. And it seeks sexual pleasure apart from that ultimate purpose. And, 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 you know, sexual union, as God intends it to be, is an expression of love and commitment and nurture. Um, <clears throat> and, and lust corrupts that. Lust is bad, fourth reason, because it misses the mark. Literally, <clears throat> sin, the word for sin in the Greek is missing the mark. Like I've just totally missed the mark on the timing of this message. <laughs> We're going to go over the... i got to finish this. Uh, God's mark... Uh, for for sexual love is 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 God's mark for all of love and for all of life. The, the author of the book says the mark is God. All right. So our sexual identity, our sexual lives, should line up with the character of God, just as every aspect of our life should line up with the character of God. What is God's character? And just some things that can apply to sexuality. God is just. Justice. It does not violate yourself or someone else. It seeks the good for yourself and for others. But immorality, lust, violates you and violates others and violates the community. Therefore, it is unjust. Does that make sense? All right. But God's love is just. And so we can enjoy in a right relationship justice. We share in God's uh, 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 nature. Even in the area of sexuality, it's free. Sin brings slavery, but love brings freedom. It seeks to free others. Lust enslaves yourself and others. If you have a lustful relationship with someone, if you enter into lust, that's sin, and you're going to be brought into uh, bondage. And if you involve them in that in any way, even if you're both Christian and you're just dating and you violate the boundaries, you're bringing bondage. And that's not God's nature. All right? God wants it to produce freedom. God's love is exclusive, it's not arbitrary. Okay? It's not arbitrary. It's grounded on reality, not fantasy. Lust is arbitrary. You lust at someone just because it's a momentary attraction. The way the light glistens off their hair, maybe. But love is exclusive. It's, it's, It's a commitment for a lifetime. You know, God demonstrated His His love for us by giving His body Right? We demonstrate our love, not arbitrarily, but with purpose. It's exclusive. It's grounded on reality. There's only one God. That's why idolatry is wrong, because it's not true. Right? Idolatry is fantasy. Fantasy, therefore, is idolatry. If you're lusting in fantasy life, you're committing idolatry. You can listen to that on the recording if you didn't get it. It's faithful. God's love is faithful. It endures. Even throughout Scripture, God's people fail continually, don't they? God's faithful. You know what? God kept His vow. Even when His people didn't. God keeps His vow. You know how we know that? Because Jesus died on the cross. 
regardless of the rejection that he suffered. When God said, I love you, he meant it with his whole body. It's proof that God loves. This is how God loves. Okay? This is how our sexuality ought to reflect God's love. Until death do us part. We become one. And it's life, it's, it's life giving. Sexual love like God's is filled with life, with the power and joy of creation, with daily renewal of day, of delight in the beloved. That in turn gives rise to hospitality of spirit, to bearing children of the body and of the heart. And that was a quote. So this idea is that sec- our sexuality, when infused with the character of God, creates a, a life-giving environment where we can, we can bear fruit, okay, whether it's physical children or whether it's relationships that's life-giving with other people. There should be an overflow of life, of justice, of freedom, of exclusivity, of faithfulness, of life. In our, that applies to our sexuality. And when we do that, we can be free. Oh, all right. <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go through the, the remedies of, of lust. And we're just not going to do the, the life group honoring thing, okay? <clears throat> all right? Because I, I really feel that these are important because I, I know you guys don't struggle with lust. Actually, the chair here, would anyone like to come up and testify? No. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone struggles with lust. If, 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 the, if, the, if the goal, the ideal, or the definition of, of, of why lust is bad is missing the mark, we all miss the mark in some way. Listen, we all miss the mark. Some, one, some people miss the mark in very flagrant, extravagant, or visible ways. Some miss the mark in very secret. They look very upright. But there's stuff going on in the heart. God sees it all. All right. So we all need to know what the remedies for lust are. They're going to go through these quickly, but they're very important. The first is confession. Let me read the quote from the book. The first remedy for lust is to drop the willful denial that shields, that shields our sexual lives from God and to confess our sin to Him. We have missed the mark. All right. Confess your sin. Ha! Who would have thought? But this brings freedom. Alright? Confessing means to agree with. God, this is sin. Now listen. This is where freedom comes. Is when you find yourself sinning, confess it right then. Right in the third of it. Alright? When you give in and you realize... (gasps) Right then, say, Jesus, I'm sin. Alright? And the mental image is still in your brain. Say, Jesus, that's sin. Invite Him in right then. Okay? The quicker you can bring Him into it. Because He's already there. Alright? You're acknowledging Christ's presence in the midst of your sin and you can find freedom. Alright? Invite God into your weakness so He will share with you His strength. Alright? <clears throat> invite God into your weakness so He can share with you His strength. Alright? But if you sin and you have to wait till tomorrow to pray about it, alright? You're faking. 
All right? Deal with it. He's there. He's ready to hear. He hasn't left you. He's faithful to the end. And he's willing to nurture you to that point. Confess it to others if it's persistent. If you need to, talk to somebody about it. And get specific. All right? Whatever your sin is, get specific. Be brutal. Forgiveness. Let me read two quotes. The remedy for lust includes hearing that word of forgiveness deeply. As Mary heard the angel's word deeply within her body, God's forgiveness is not a legal loophole setting justice aside or a sort of divine grade inflation by which everyone gets promoted regardlessly. Jesus joins God's nature to ours in death and resurrection turns everything upside down. That's what forgiveness and confession brings. Lust pollutes the church's consecration to God. When God forgives lust, it is by drawing us into the living gift of Christ's own holiness. Listen, lust sends out, lust sends one looking for love in all the wrong places and ends in idolatry and slavery. When God forgives lust, it is by putting His love at the center of our life. Lust robs love of vision and purpose, leaving sex aimless. When God forgives lust, it draws us into His great purpose to reconcile all things to Himself in Christ Jesus. Okay, so you experience the sin of lust. This is an opportunity for you to be drawn closer to Christ. Respond to it. All right? Respond to it rightly and you'll end up closer. Respond to it wrongly and you'll end up alienated. But don't hide it. Let's quit hiding it. Jesus ultimately is the remedy for lust. Okay? Relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a new relationship with the living God. Uh, 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 Knowing we are forgiven does not mean giving up the struggle against lust. Forgiveness is not a blank check for sin. It's a new relationship with the living God in which lust can have no permanent role. When God draws our intention into His own, that implies His presence in the interior place. Listen, in the interior place where you think and feel, yearn and fear, desire and love. Okay? Those are deep waters over which the Holy Spirit broods. Where old chaos and new creation struggle together. Our intentions are shaped by many forces, internal and external, which we only dimly understand and partly control. Only God can reshape lust into love like His own. So the ultimate remedy for lust and every manifestation of sexual sin is Jesus Christ. That's why you need to invite Him into the place where you hide your lust. Because He can set it straight and you can't. Okay, well-defined standards and guarding your heart are the other two and cultivating life. Well-defined standards, guarding your heart. In other words, know what's right and wrong. Guard your heart. Don't do stuff that's wrong. Cultivate life. You can't prevent all negative influences. We're bombarded continually. But you can cultivate life. All right? When you weed a garden, the purpose is not to have a barren, dry patch of dirt. 
<laughs> what is the purpose? Is so that the plants that you want to grow will flourish. All right? And so, what are you planting in your heart? And keep the weeds out. And you know what? What you nurture will grow. Nurture life. Bill's going to come share some announcements. Thank you. All right. So I'd just like to welcome everyone who forgot to change their clocks back, who came an hour early for second service. Glad to have you in first service. We have more fun. Um, don't get mad. It was just a joke. Jeez, Herman. Um, so I uh, guess we just want to welcome you and give you a gift. If you tear off the connection card portion of your bulletin and go right to the connection counter in the back, we have a gift for you. We'd love to give that to you. Um, I felt like I had another joke and I was trying to remember it for a second. I forgot. All right, I better hurry. Um, next week, there's a team from the School of Ministry in Toronto that's coming. These are young people who have given months of their life to go study, get healed, and get closer to God. And they're going to come share with us, which is going to be great. They'll be here for both services on Sunday. But they're going to be doing a service project in the Vine Street neighborhood on Saturday at 11. So if you want to be involved, you can bring gloves and garbage bags and go to the Iglesia, which is on Locust Street. Google it. Google Maps with satellite. It's great. Um, Also, the women's retreat, sign up. New Day Family Christmas Party is coming up. See your bulletin for details on those. Um... We sent people to Haiti. Dan and Evie Jeffries went. We prayed for Evie last week. Scanning, don't see them. But they are back safe when you do see them. Yeah, that's great. When you do see them, welcome them back and ask them how cool it was. They'll tell you. Ushers, if you would come, that would be great. We're going to take an offering. And then close up. Close up shop. Get ready for second service. Have some donuts. All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for a good word, for good worship and awesome communion, Lord. Um, It's just been a good morning to be with you, Lord, and this is also an act of worship, God, giving to you, Lord. And I know you bless people who give you the first and best of what they have, Lord. So we just ask you to continue to do that, to multiply and use the money.